Good morning, everyone. It's a long walk from back there. Uh, good to see you. Actually, I don't see you with these lights here, but um, I've heard you, so I know you're here. Um, the cool German accent, I, I don't know. I, I can't uh, judge that. But uh, Greg, thanks for the introduction. You're the master of embellishment and hyperbole and all that. And by the way, Greg, I, I don't know where you are uh, this morning, but um, it's you who taught at Bethel College. I actually teach at Bethel Seminary. But, uh, you know, these, <laughs> these little confusions happen sometimes. Um, speaking of Bethel Seminary, I was asked specifically to say a little bit about that. And uh, there's also a table out there uh, with some information. And um, I'll keep it brief. Three years ago, I had no idea what Bethel Seminary was. I had never even heard about it. I was sitting in England. I was, I was uh, working at a university there, and I got a phone call one evening from a certain David Clark. You know David Clark? He was here. He, uh, he spoke here a while ago. And um, that's my first contact with Bethel Seminary. And uh, speaking to David for an hour, whom I'd never met before, convinced me that this is the kind of place where I could probably, you know, work and feel, feel quite at home. So I came over here, I had a look, thinking that I'm going to call my wife on the first day and say, you know what, this is, this is one of those narrow places, you know, where I couldn't breathe, and, um, but it was a nice trip. Actually, what happened, I was totally um, surprised positively about what a wonderful place Bethel is. Just briefly, a couple of things that I've noticed in those, those couple of years that I've been there. Um, there's, a, there's a focus on the world, not just self-serving church, but the world. I noticed out there, I, I picked this up, uh, it says here, taking the next step to change the world. I used to hate this kind of talk. It's, uh, it just seems over the top. And um, actually, however, if we are not here to take steps to change the world, then why are we here? Uh, might as well be raptured away. So uh, that is one of the things I, I deeply appreciate about Bethel. I don't think we've arrived, but Bethel is one of the few places that is that is um, you know knows the direction and has started going there. The other thing is um, integration. Uh, at Bethel, we've we've started talking to each other. I'm a New Testament professor. I'm talking to people in in in, in counseling. I, I know what you think. I'm, I mean, in terms of the actual work that we do. And um, I, you know, I, I need to learn from those guys what's going on in that area. I may use some of that. They may use some of my material. We may turn up in each other's classrooms. That doesn't happen often enough yet, but we've started doing it. That is wonderful. We need to learn from each other. So integration um, is, is a big one. Diversity. We've got quite a diverse group of people teaching there and also students. That is crucial. The world is becoming more diverse. We have to become more diverse, otherwise we become irrelevant. And finally, the quality of our students. I think at Bethel, um, there, some steps have been taken to um, at, at, at what was already a really good um, school to make sure that we recruit high-quality people. And actually, you may disagree with this, I don't know, but the church actually needs people of the sort of PhD caliber uh, it needs it badly, 
um, because of uh, all sorts of stuff that's going on philosophically and that's determining our world. So to cut a long story short, I think Bethel is actually a place with a wonderful future. And if you're interested in, in theological studies, go there. If you're interested in supporting it, support it. Um, it's money well spent. Anyway, I hope you liked the video, the, the, the kids. I don't mean Greg and his dog. I mean the one before that. They're wonderful kids. Now, it's a pretty random selection for you. Actually, those are all kids in the first half of that video that were adopted by Bethel families. And it doesn't matter that it's Bethel and not Woodland Hills. I know there are lots of people here who have been adopted and who um, are adopting children. Um, but did you notice in the second half where he talks about some who are still waiting? There are millions and millions of kids in the world who are waiting literally, literally to get a life. They have a biological life. And they have people around them, hopefully, who do their hardest to give them a life worth living. But the life that God really has in mind for them, um, they, they don't have it at the moment. Because that requires the kind of spirit-empowered community that they just don't have access to. I'm going to be talking about uh, child adoption, um, and before you turn off and think, I'm too old, uh, I don't have enough cash, and so on, this matters the world to you, and I mean that literally, and I will explain that. Um, so please uh, stay tuned for, for a bit longer. Uh, I'm, I entitled this, Some Dance to Remember, Some Dance to Forget, and there's a, there's a reason uh, for that why I went for that, and uh, it'll become evident in a minute. Some dance to remember, some dance to forget. Reflections about the waiting children um, of this world. I want to take you back to the year 1990. I was teaching in England, and I was asked to do some, some teaching in Romania. Now, Romania, this was right at the end of the Ceausescu regime, very oppressive place um, at the time. And um, I was sitting on a, on a train going through Carpathia. That supposedly is where Dracula is at home. <laughs> and so I'm sitting in this train, and here's the situation. This train was supposed to take six hours to get to the place I had to go to with practically no civilization, just old castles, beautiful castles, run down. Dracula, remember? And, um, and I'm sitting in this train, and literally the first few minutes I thought I was the only person in the entire train until one other person came in and chose a seat exactly opposite from me. And this guy looked scary. He, he, had, um, he wore a uniform, so I didn't know whether he was security police. They were still around even after Ceausescu or what he was. Um, he, had, um, he was in need of some uh, dental treatment. He had the, these, these you know, aluminum-type teeth, and he was grinning at me constantly. And, um, and I thought, isn't there anybody else in this train? And, and there wasn't. There wasn't. It was, it was like left behind or something. And, and I don't even want to go there. Um, so I'm sitting there, and I'm reading Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness, because my wife asked me to. And she wanted an opinion. And I formed my opinion without, within a minute or so. And I still had six hours to go, so I'm sitting in this train, and this guy is grinning at me perpetually, and I'm looking out the window, and I see this beautiful, beautiful countryside out there. And suddenly it hits me, reading this present darkness, the tensions we're living in. God has given us a wonderful creation. And yet, here is a guy who clearly had, you know, his life 
probably wasn't wonderful. I don't know enough about him, I suppose, to make that statement, but he, he had, you know, there was something about him that didn't seem quite right. And, uh, and then, we, you know, the, the book, uh, talking about demons here and demons there and, and so on, kind of quantifying evil in a way that I found rather difficult. And um, I'm sitting there reflecting on the tension between God's goodness in giving us a wonderful creation and, on the other hand, uh, the tension of living in, in darkness. Uh, occasionally, we pass little villages, and they were incredibly poor, incredibly poor. So that tension was with me, and I was trying to make sense of that. And my thoughts went back to a few days earlier when I visited a Romanian orphanage because one of my students in Romania was, was, was director uh, of an orphanage. And I, I walked around, and I saw these kids, and they were, they were kind of walking in patterns, some of them, the same patterns. And others were rocking back and forth a little bit. And I asked him, and I was thinking of the ones that were walking around, I said, what, what are they doing? You know, like, like a fool, I asked, what are they doing? And he said, you know what? Those children walk the rhythm of pathology and desperation. Some dance to remember and some dance to forget. That is haunting. So I'm sitting in the train thinking about that. And suddenly it hits me that this guy knows Hotel California by the Eagles. Some dance to remember, some dance to forget. And if you do not know the life version of Hotel California, you are too young to be here. And, uh, and I believe we have provision uh, for you uh, over there. Hotel California, Don Henley wrote that, and in that he's, he's, he's critiquing um, some kind of meaninglessness, some kind of idolatry in life. You know, the, she's got a Tiffany twisted mind, she's got the Mercedes-Benz, presumably it's capitalism. There are Kalidas in there. Can I mention Kalidas here? I don't know. There are, um, the, the, there's the hotel. I always thought that was about prostitution. I don't know, but there's a critique there. Of, of some underlying idolatry. Biblically put, the question then for us is something like this. Are we prepared to live creationally, that is, in tune with the Creator, in a world that is dominated by idolatry? Those kids that you saw there and that are still waiting, those kids are to some extent the result of the idolatry of this world, wrong priorities, and so on. So let's explore this a little bit. Uh, two core questions. Number one, how prepared are we in principle to be God's primary tool of recovery? That is, recovering his fallen creation. And specifically, number two, how willing are we to face up to the sad reality of those kids? What I'm going to be talking about is, is a, call it a biblical theology of child adoption, call it some kind of framework to help us make sense of this, whatever you call it, that's not the issue. I'll just call it a biblical theology of child adoption, and I tell you why I think we need it. We need it, number one, because none exists, which I find astonishing. If it is true, as I, you know, I would argue, if it is true that those children, children, you know, who are part of the pinnacle of God's creation, and they're, they're in this world, and they're waiting to get a life. 
If it is true that they're an expression, not least, of, of, of wrong priorities in the world, of idolatries, uh, selfishness, and so on, uh, if that is true, then it is astonishing that we as Christians do not yet have appear to, to, to have formed a, a response to that. I know some of you are responding to it. I know you're doing it. Some of you are adopting kids. Some of you are adopting just other people, whether they're kids or not. And that is wonderful. And in the end, that is the response that actually counts. And it's an inspiration to us. But some of us also need to go back and ask, isn't there, aren't there serious, serious biblical grounds for saying to each other, um, not so much, what reasons could there possibly to be to adopt these kids, but rather, why on earth would we not do it? There's a connection between God adopting us and our responsibility in the world, and I think it's underappreciated. The other thing is that advances in, in reproductive technology, it seems to me, make it so much harder for the world's children. The waiting children, they, they now compete with advances in science and technology. The final reason I want to give you why we need a biblical theology of child adoption is that quite apart from the children, it will help us make sense of life in general. It is at the core of what the Bible is about, this notion of adoption. Let's start with a grand story, the big story of God and his creation. Very briefly, three main components to that. Um, and if, you're, if you consider yourself a postmodern who denies grand stories, and especially that grand stories have any claim on us, um, I'll, um, I'll just totally disagree with you. <laughs> the Bible insists, it insists that there is one authentic meta story, one big narrative, and it insists that that is the only one that will help us make sense of reality out there. And the key core, the three core components of that are number one, there's only one God, and number two, that God created us. That was by no means uh, easy to uh, accept by people in a world where people often thought in antiquity matter, physical stuff is, is bad news. We need to escape from that. Death is an escape from that. The Bible insists not only that there's just one God, but that that God created us. A contradiction for a lot of people, not for the Bible. And thirdly, God remains committed to his fallen creation. He's committed to recovering it. That's why I was saying earlier, how committed are we to be part, uh, to, to be God's primary recovery tool as he's working, working to the extent of sending his son to the cross to recover a fallen creation. That's our framework. Everything we say about this, everything, in fact, that we say about anything, needs to make sense under that framework. Um, you know, I, if, if postmodern means cool, then I guess I'm trying to be a postmodern Christian. If it, if it means anything more than that, I'm, I'm not postmodern. I live in a postmodern world, but I would insist that there's a biblical story that is absolutely determinative and binding and authoritative for each of us, at least if each of us wants to live authentically or creationally. 
So that's a framework. And then God picks a people. He goes to Israel and says, I want you to be my project humanity. I want you to be my recovery project. And that means, I want you to advertise what true life actually means. I want you to live in such a way by observing my will, the Creator's will, that the world will look on and say, I want some of that. I guess that's a phrase uh, made famous by a film involving Mac Ryan, those of you uh, who remember. You know, can I have some of that? If you don't remember, never mind. <laughs> um, the world needs to look at the way God's people live. And the world needs to say, I want some of that. That is Israel's task. And the way God wanted them to do it is by self-sacrifice. And sometimes that took uh, forms that you and I would not necessarily um, define as being self-sacrificial. But the heart of the Old Testament, the heart of the Old Covenant, is that Israel lives not for itself, but it lives sacrificially for the benefit of the world. And so should we. Did Israel succeed? No, but Jesus did. Jesus succeeded on Israel's behalf. And if you've ever wondered why the New Testament takes all those terms that in the Old Testament clearly refer to Israel, and it takes those terms and now applies them to Jesus, here is the reason. Terms like Son of God, Suffering Servant, Son of Man. Terms that we, it seems, we only know them as terms about Jesus. And we forgot, forget that actually, in the Old Testament, those are clearly, clearly, if we take the trouble to read the whole uh, context, they are clearly terms for Israel. So when those terms are now applied to Jesus, the message is, uh, is clear and it's powerful. Jesus, Israel succeeded only insofar as as, as Jesus took Israel's purpose and, and, and destiny and aspirations to the cross, self-sacrificially. If we want to see the Israel of success, we have to look at Jesus. And that is the reason, of course, why he picked 12 disciples to be with him, to get that point across quite powerfully. 12? 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. Jesus is the project humanity. Jesus is the, the renewal of Israel. Um, Jesus is the one who lives authentically, the authentically human life by being self-sacrificial. He advertises to the world what the, 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 the very heart of true life looks like. So Jesus is the embodiment of what it means to be truly human. That's the reason at the end of the day why he is the world's only hope. He died for the world, Luke 23. He was restored to true life, Luke 24. He was confirmed as the world's only hope, ascension, Acts 1, which, by the way, is the next chapter, not in your Bible, but it should be because the, the order of the Bible really doesn't often make sense. Acts is the second volume of Luke's gospel, which is the first volume. They're both of the, they're, they're the same book. So Acts 1 is the continuation. We have the cross in Luke 23. We have the resurrection, the restoration to life in 24. We have ascension, that is, the confirmation of Jesus as the world's only hope. That is how it would have been understood at the time. Acts 1. And finally, we have Jesus returning through the Spirit in Acts 2. 
we have four chapters that should belong together there. And I, I, I just call the whole thing the Christ event. Find a better term if you can think of one. It, it sounds a little dry. The main thing is none of, the four, none of those four things makes any sense for us on its own. And even if we have three of them but not the fourth, it still does not help us that much. So the question is, how driven are we as Christians uh, in real life by the Christ event? by the self-sacrificial story that Jesus lived out um, for us. So we have Israel, and then we have Jesus, the true fulfiller of what Israel is about. And then we have the church. And the church, according to the New Testament, is God's wisdom challenge to this world. Ephesians 3.10 is one of many passages uh, to that effect. By living out Jesus' subversive values, and subversion is, um, is a good thing in my vocabulary, by living out, because I'm an alien and I can do these things, uh, you know, people will say it's just a language issue. <laughs> by living out Jesus' subversive um, values, as the first Christians did, instead of romanticizing them, Oh, isn't Jesus wonderful? Isn't it great? And what a, what, a, what a big heart he has and so on. Well, that's true, but we still need to live it out. And by doing that, by living out Jesus' subversive values, um, we are challenging the idolatry of this world. In Greg's language, you know, we, are, we develop a kingdom consciousness. Uh, in Greg's other language, we dance the dance of the kingdom. Um, so the church is God's wisdom challenge to the world. We need to refuse to be indim- intimidated by what the world calls common sense. Uh, the world calls greed and selfishness common sense. Many call pornography common sense. We need to refuse to be intimidated by those things. We need to say no to Tiffany Twisted Minds and Mercedes Benz with DS at the end. And by existing... By existing to incorporate people into this model humanity, this, this, this wisdom challenge of God to the world, um, what, are, what are we actually doing at that point? We're adopting. We're adopting. All I'm doing is I'm going to apply this a little bit to children because uh, that's on my heart. I'm, I'm a New Testament prof and I'm a truth guy and all that. But actually, and I'm a German, I'm not supposed to be passionate because Italians are passionate. But, but actually, I feel passionately about this one. Um, the way we treat the world's um, awaiting children says a lot about our understanding of the gospel, and so it should. We mediate, as it were, to the world the power of renewal. Have you ever noticed in, in, in Acts 1 when it says that um, the Spirit of God is poured out unto, unto his people? That, that reminds us, as much of the New Testament does, right back of, of Genesis 1. Verse 2, the beginning of the Bible, where the Spirit hovers above creation. Creation is a spiritual thing. God created us through His Spirit. And, and Pentecost basically says that God's powerful Spirit is back. Because of Jesus, mediating Jesus' presence with us, the Spirit at the end of the day, whatever Trinitarian discussions we want to have, at the end of the day, the Spirit is about Jesus with us. And the point of that is that Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus 
uh, is with us through the Spirit because, as Ephesians tells us, Ephesians 2.15 and many other places, on the cross, by dying self-sacrificially, Jesus, it says there, explicitly created in himself a new humanity. And if your Bible translation says a new man, um, you want, may want to get a, a new one. Um, <laughs> the reason, it's not the, I'm not after the sexism issue, although that is a very real issue. I'm after the fact that Ephesians does not have in mind individuals. We are the ones who are obsessed to that, not the Bi- with that, not the Bible. Uh, it's about the creation of a humanity of renewal. That's us. That is supposed to be us. And we've got to ask whether we really are that. So, if Pentecost is the pinnacle of what I call the Christ event, what precisely is the role of the Spirit? Well, a few things here. Number one, to remind God's people of the continued involvement of the Creator in His creation. Number two, to sponsor truly creational, that is authentic, non-idolatrous, non-worldly communities. Model uh, model humanities, uh, model communities um, in the world, advertisements in the world of God's continued uh, work to recover his fallen creation. Number three, to push God's people beyond religious observance to a radical lifestyle. Some months ago, Sandra Unger and, and, and Paul Eddy preached here. This is the one when she called me an egghead. And I was going to get back at her. Pictures lined up of proving that she's the egghead, not me. But she's not here, so I, I kind of didn't do that. But um, in, in that talk, they were talking about church not as something that you can go to. Do you remember that? She said, how many of you want to stop going to church? And her assumption was you would all say, We all do. We want to stop going to church because church is about a lifestyle, not an event. And that is one of the roles of the Spirit, to convince us, biblically, that church is a lifestyle issue, especially after Pentecost. How dare we point back to Israel and say, you failed. The Old Testament is full of your failures. When in fact, we have the Spirit and we still fail. There's something hypocritical um, about that. Number four, the Spirit's point, the Spirit's, <coughs> um, the, the, the Spirit's power, the Spirit's agenda in us is to help us overcome what I would call graded holiness. The New Testament is so clear on this. We cannot tolerate graded holiness. We cannot tolerate things like, you know, like, like, like the view that some people are either by office or responsibility or education or any other kind of background um, are are kind of holier than others. Uh, The New Testament is about um, people who find equality in Christ. That is part of the renewal of humanity. We need to overcome graded holiness and we need to overcome it radically. And we probably still have a long way to go. Practical example, somebody gets ill, doesn't get visited by the senior pastor. People think, I haven't been visited by the church. That is an instance of graded holiness. We don't want that. The Spirit doesn't want that. 
And finally, the role of the Spirit to keep reminding the world of its own catastrophic course of idolatry and self-destruction. If Don Henley can do that, and I don't know the guy. Yesterday I talked to someone who, who, who met Joe Walsh, the lead guitarist of the Eagles, and they talked about this. And, uh, but I don't know Don Henley. But if a guy like Don Henley, whatever his philosophical commitments, if he can stand up to the world and say, there's some idolatry going on and it's not good, <laughs> um, then shouldn't we be able to do that too <laughs> in a way that is actually restorative? and yet deeply subversive and challenging. Anyway, this is the grand theological picture, as it were, and now I just want to ask, so what about the world's waiting children? It seems to me that we don't really have a choice. It seems to me that adopting the world's waiting children for Christians has got to be not an option, but a, a duty and a privilege. A privilege. It is... Um, rewarding beyond imagination uh, to take another person, in this case a child, into your life and to fully and totally share life with that person. Can things go wrong? Of course they can. But they can go wrong with our biological children too. Incorporation into God's model humanity is the only hope that the world's waiting children have. In any case, what sort of salvation are we really advertising if we keep our doors shut to the orphans and the marginalized of this world? I hope you can begin to see how, how this matters for all our human interaction, not just child adoption. And I will tell you why. Actually, tell you, let's talk about that now. seems to me that adoption is a precondition of human life, true human life. And that applies to every single person in this room, including myself and everybody out there. Adoption is a condition of true life. No, ex no exceptions. God had to adopt us because we had, and still have to some extent, attachment issues. It is not just the children who need to get adopted with the attachment issues. Um, if God has helped us and is helping us overcome those issues, attachment issues with the Creator, should we not extend that to the world's waiting children? Adoption is another word for restoration. And um, the question is, if adoption means restoration, then what's holding us back? Well, I suggest a few things to you that I think are holding us back. I've got about five here. It could be 50 or probably 500. These are things that I, you know, I observe and things that I, people have kind of brought to me as well. Number one, our self-obsession, our obsession with me, the individual, when in fact our spiritual instincts should be to live for the other. The life-affirming option, biblically, is concern for the other. Number two, our propensity to defend our chosen lifestyles no matter what. I see so much on television lately that is based on the assumption that our chosen lifestyle um, must be defended at all cost. As, as, if it, as if it must be God's priority to defend our chosen lifestyles. Tiffany twisted mind. 
We should be helping the world recover its creational center. Our lifestyle is secondary to that. Number three, a certain knee-jerk deference, it seems to me, in the Western world, um, not just here, but in, you know, where I come from and, and elsewhere in the Western world, a sort of knee-jerk deference to, to corporate priorities, uh, profit, self-advancement, and so on. I know there are plenty of churches who work hard to recruit people, and I don't know if this has happened here or not, I have no idea, but to recruit people from the corporate world and to put them up here and to say, you know what, this person was real, this is really, so, so this big shot in some major corporation, isn't it great we now have that expertise? Well, especially if that person, you know, does this for half the salary now. That, that is impressive. But the more important goal surely must be that we go to the world to subvert it and not to ask for um, its, its um, philosophy and its expertise. Some of it is good and some of it is idolatrous. Number four, our conveniently reductionistic, reduced understanding of salvation once again, as being primarily about me. It's God and me. And it's my relationship with God. Preferably, it's God and me in terms of when I die, so that I'm, I'm okay in terms of salvation beyond that point. That's a strangely reduced understanding of salvation. Um, our role in God's thinking depends very much on what sort of humanity we live out, what sort of communities we are part of, what we contribute to that. That is where we should be getting our sense of worth. Uh, it's not just God and me. And finally, number five, our concept of conversion as a one-off event. So prevalent in Christianity. We get, we get converted and we're kind of done and from now on we're in, like in a, in a waiting room or something waiting for the next step, which would either be Jesus coming back or us dying. I think that, once again, is a misunderstanding that the Bible doesn't tolerate, but we often do. Here's some excuses, and I, you know, I'm sorry about the kind of the negative tone at this point, but it's, uh, you know, Greg asked you a few times, or asked lately, um, are you awake? Have you woken up? We need to wake up. Here's some excuses that I heard about uh, why I cannot say uh, to people, to Christians in general, they have a responsibility to adopt the world's children. Make up your own mind on some of these. Some of them I'll, I'll just say something about. Number one, people have used predestination for this purpose. You know, predestination, the view that some Christians have, myself excluded, that God determines before creating the world that Mr. Smith goes to heaven and Mrs. Miller goes to hell. Seems to me that predestination, which is a biblical term, I just don't think it means that at all, that predestination has become kind of Christianese for fate. It's like saying fate with a Christian flavor. It's the um, keep warm and well-fed ideology. Number two, one day God will replace this world. Have we become Gnostics? Have we become people who deny the goodness of creation? Have we become people who, whose purpose here is purely to wait 
to escape from this place? Have we not listened to Jesus when he said that the kingdom should come here as it is in heaven? Some have said (coughs) that faith in action is about our individual relationships with God. Well, I talked about that already. It seems to me that that is narcissism dressed up as uh, spiritual humility. And finally, what matters most is preaching the truth of the gospel. Would you agree that preaching the truth of the gospel without acting on it is just sheer cynicism? There's an irony in the way we do theology sometimes. It's, it's, I call it armchair theology, the sort of escapist um, version. And um, armchair theology, it seems to me, at this point, makes a mockery of the notion of grace. Grace, God's grace, is the thing that should propel us to go into the world and to work for the recovery of God's fallen creation. We need to show these children what God's grace looks like. And we need to show it to the guy who sits on the sidewalk with a little sign. And I still struggle with that a great deal, and I'm sure you do too. And it seems ironic to me that the very thing that should compel us to go out and to love the world actually gets cynically twisted sometimes into an excuse for preaching about the world and, uh, and retreating from it rather than actually going out there and being there for the people. Remember Hotel California? Too often the Christian mind gets Tiffany twisted. I know there are misunderstandings about child adoption that are real. Misunderstandings that are not cynical. Misunderstandings that um, I can relate to. (coughs) And I just want to pick up a couple of them and uh, as we close, kind of talk about them very briefly. Adoption is the exception, I hear people say sometimes. We have our own children that God has given us. Notice the definition of own children. The reality is that parents who have own children and adopted children will not make that distinction. I hear it say sometimes that biology creates that special bond. In reality, biologically based definitions of our own children seems to me show that we haven't understood the nature of the gospel. I would go as far as to say that they are an embarrassment to the creator. Biology is a wonderful creational thing, but it in no way can take the place of adoption. God entrusts children and people to our care. Sometimes he does it biologically. It's wonderful. Sometimes he does it through adoption. The point is, each of those two children still needs to be accepted into the model humanity that God has in mind for us. In other words, children need to be adopted, period regardless of how they enter our lives. And yet, the feeling I get is that we're so, um, how can I put this? 
We're so misled by advances in reproductive technology, by encouragement in the world to uh, promote ourselves, that we think that having children is about reproducing ourselves. And actually, it's the last word there that I think is the problem. Our, at the end of the day, we exist not to promote or reproduce ourselves. At the end of the day, we exist to be transformed and to tra help transform others. So I would question some of those priorities um, that we bring to things like adoption. We reduce it often to issues of uh, lifestyle. Well, it is an issue of lifestyle, but it's more than that. It's an issue of our understanding of the gospel. It is an issue of our understanding or lack of understanding in the area of what God still has in store for this world. If we are this project humanity, we cannot simply downgrade these issues uh, to lifestyle choices. Um, for us, um, <coughs> as people who have adopted a child, I have to say, and we're, we're adopting another one, I have to say that it's wonderfully therapeutic um, to, to see how giving life to another person enriches yourself. Children often need to experience forgiveness. Children who haven't done anything wrong in this area at all still need to experience forgiveness. Where are they going to do that if not in the community, the Christ and Spirit-empowered community of Christians. I just want to uh, say, last night when I talked about this, I had a bunch of emails and conversations and so on afterwards. And there were people who said to me, um, I'm too old. Sure, but there are people who are young and willing to adopt, but they don't have the money. It's very expensive. If you think you're too old, if you think that for whatever reason, you cannot do it. Maybe you have resources that you can share with someone else who can do it. Somebody else said, my husband, I would love to do it. A few people said that yesterday. I would love to do it, but my husband isn't a Christian. What sort of home would I be adopting the child into and that kind of thing? We as churches need to develop communities in the world that ensure that the burden of adopting the world is spread so it's not just you fighting as a single person. The world's children, it seems to me, live in Hotel California. Their life could be heaven, but often it's hell. Our minds as Christians are still too often Tiffany twisted, and we quite literally have the Mercedes Benz. Those children dance to remember, and they dance to forget. They can grow up any time, but will they ever live? Relax, said the nightman at the end of that song. Relax, said the nightman. Are you programmed to receive? Well, actually, in this song says, we are programmed to receive. But my question is, are you programmed to receive or only to be received? There's something chilling, spine-chilling, about Christians who want to be received without receiving. And too often, I'm one of them. Relax, said the night man. Hey, let's not relax. Let's set the agenda for the world by living creationally. Let's go to places that the world doesn't even know exist and then say to the world, come here. Let's be there first. Invite the world to catch up with us. 
If you need to be received by the sponsor of True Life, I believe there are, there are people here are going to be here um, at the front, and please talk to them. If you're programmed to receive, by all means, uh, come up and talk to me uh, about adoption. I'm not the greatest expert on this, but there are people in the church who've done it, who know about it, who work in that area, and who can help. Good news needs to be lived out. If we don't live it out, it's just another idolatry. Please think about it. Thanks for listening. God bless. There are days when I'm reminded